0: Science. Welcome to Lockdown Science on CAMFM. This show is what happens when two biologists isolate together and are trying to find something to do other than meticulously studying the behaviour of their cat. I'm Ellie.
1: And I'm Andrew. And if you've been listening for a while, you'll know that this show is COVID free. We bring you the best science we have found in the last fortnight that has nothing to do with the pandemic.
0: Which is good because we've just spent another two weeks in lockdown. And I think we all need a bit of a mental breather from the bombardment of terrible news. But although we've been in a lockdown, that doesn't mean nothing's happened. America has a new president. The UK braced itself for Storm Kristoff. And I moved my hand vaguely near the cat. She freaked out and bit me so hard that I'm now on antibiotics. So really, it's been a pretty eventful time.
1: Yeah, it's almost like like life was pre-lockdown. And we are also in a new location. We are. (laughs) We're locked down in the room next to the room we used to be locked down in. It's really
0: very far away. And by very far, I mean literally two metres. Yeah, I think so. But the exciting thing is, and if you listen to the first few ones of these, you'll have known that we talked about being in our fort, which was in the bottom of our bunk beds. We now actually sit upright like proper humans in a room.
1: Yeah, so this is kind of an experiment to see whether this podcast is better or worse when we're not giving ourselves back injuries. (laughs)
0: yeah you know what why don't you email in lockdownsciencepodcast at gmail.com and tell us are you pro or anti us getting back injuries tell us how you think it sounds (laughs) on the pod
1: that is the feedback we've always needed
0: (laughs) if you want i can just sort of sit hunched during this one to give myself back injuries just in case it helps
1: yeah i mean you know maybe maybe that's actually the trick to podcasting and this is this is going to go horribly
0: okay well slouching away let's get on with the show
1: Science of the Week.
0: Well, it's that time of the show where I embarrass Andrew with how little he knows about science. Just the kind of thing the scientist wants on his science show. So how are you feeling about today's Science of the Week, quiz?
1: As ready as ever.
0: So not ready at all. Exactly. Oh, brilliant way to set off. Okay, number one. A few weeks ago, we reported that a coin featuring David Bowie was fired into space. To continue on this excellent and timeless theme... What other unusual object was launched to the edge of space this week?
1: Oh, okay. I've, I've entirely missed this. I've got no idea.
0: I'm going to give you a couple of clues. It was edible and it was sent into space to celebrate an annual special occasion that takes place on the 25th of January.
1: Oh, I thought you were going to say the 25th of December. That would have been a bit easier. Would have
0: been a bit late.
1: Frozen turkey. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no. But...
1: 25th of January? Yeah. Uh-huh. I have no idea. And not?
0: maybe what what special nut day are we celebrating
1: <laughs> i don't know international peanut day <laughs> no i'm just thinking like
0: you've yeah. definitely heard of this it's ah. it's not as obscure as international peanut day okay i'm really I... sorry to the peanut contingent out there we don't know when your day is
1: can i can i justify my nut idea? absolutely not yeah go ahead well i just thought a nut was a bit more robust like if you want to send some food into space that might actually remain vaguely okay out there yeah. Maybe a nut is a is a good thing. You know, if you send up a ham sandwich, it's probably going to disintegrate pretty quickly. But
0: you know what? I think that you are not giving foodstuffs as much credit as they deserve. Okay. What if I said it was squirtish? Oh,
1: is it haggis? It's a haggis. <laughs> Why you can't you can't send a poor wild haggis up into space?
0: It it was a haggis, and it was sent up to the edge of space as an early celebration for.
1: Burns night. night
0: yeah which is when Scottish people celebrate the life and works of the poet Robert Burns. The Haggis was made by the butcher Simon Howie, and it was launched from their Scottish headquarters so it's great they put a camera on the weather balloon directed at the Haggis so that you can go on their website and watch the Haggis's whole journey up into space and back again but sped up really fast. Brilliant so, <laughs> so watching the film of the Haggis' journey made me realize that I might actually be a little bit overworked at the moment because I went on like an emotional roller coaster <laughs> with this haggis <laughs> that was probably inappropriate for the fact that I was literally just watching a bag of food attached to a balloon anyway, so the video has this like really dramatic inspirational music which makes you really invested in the haggis's journey and then it got to its max height of over twenty miles above sea level and then the balloon bursts, which I think it was meant to. But that was really a twist that I did not see coming. I don't know what I thought was going to happen. Like, it was going to go on forever. But yeah, then it bursts and then it hurtles back to Earth at a maximum speed of 314 kilometres per hour.
1: That's pretty fast. That's fast for a haggis.
0: I know, right? And then it finally crashes into the ground when it's recovered by some men who look like far less emotionally involved in this haggis than I was.
1: Okay, I've got questions. Yes. First, (laughs) is that the fastest speed record for a haggis?
0: I'm gonna guess so because you know what—it is the first haggis ever in space.
1: Okay, no haggis is gonna have gone over 300 miles an hour before.
0: I can't think of any other situation where a haggis would otherwise go at that speed.
1: Yeah, but also on a less silly front, um, how do they did, does it? How do they make sure they found it when it came back down?
0: I think it did must it be came... like
1: GPS tracked. Okay, so, so it came down it in a
0: similar area.
1: Okay, so they fired it literally straight up, yeah. and then it's just kind of plopped back. That's kind of interesting. You sort mm. of assume that an air current or something would take it somewhere. Like, I, I wow, that's it's
0: amazing. very impressive. I do genuinely recommend you go on the Simon Howie website
1: and just watch this haggis
0: <laughs> on its glorious journey.
1: Sounds great. But when you said firing food into space following the David Bowie coin, I was imagining you know a sausage roll that was going to end up like next to pluto one day (laughs) they've really gone for it i
0: think that's what i was hoping for i think that's why i was so shocked when this balloon burst which is all part of the plan because obviously they wanted the haggis back yeah but
1: yeah so who's now eating the haggis
0: no one it is now being referred to as the space haggis and it's being (laughs) preserved like a bona fide vip because it has the official title of the first haggis in space. Ooh. So they want, when lockdown finishes, for it to be able to be like taken around schools to show people and get kids involved in STEM. Oh, <laughs>
1: that's really cool. I mean, or oh, sure oh, oh, just... haggis making.
0: True. I think it's probably just a marketing ploy, but it's really enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, bow down to its haggisy glory will hail the space haggis. Yeah. Number two. What job, which is the first of its kind in the UK, is being advertised by the Kent Wildlife Trust and Wildwood Trust? Hmm.
1: This is something I ought to know about. Probably. Probably.
0: It's not quite the kind of job you're qualified for, but I'm surprised it hasn't come on your radar.
1: Yeah, well, I'm thinking, you know, Kent Wildlife Trust. That's 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 my sort of... You do a lot of work sort of with circles. the Wildlife Trust. Yeah. The first of its kind in the UK. I don't, I don't know. I've got no idea.
0: It's for a bison ranger. Oh yeah don't you wish you were qualified 100 percent. the kent wildlife trust and the wildwood trust want two people to take on the role of looking after and managing a small herd of bison that are being introduced into a 200 hectare enclosure in the blean woods near canterbury as part of the wilder blean project
1: that's very exciting i have heard about the bison going back to blean woods actually but i'd sort of forgotten about it and i also hadn't thought about the fact that they would need a ranger
0: i mean who's going to look after the bison right yeah exactly So the idea is that the bison will help restore the woodland because they rub up against trees and end up felling them, which in turn opens up light spaces and bare earth within the woodland for other species of plants and trees to grow into. So it basically stops the woods being entirely dominated by one species. And then in turn, that also creates deadwood, which is vital for many insects.
1: Perfect. Perfect, perfect little ecosystem restoration because it's what the UK in particular is really missing is, is stuff that kind of goes in and just kind of messes up woodlands a little bit. Like, yeah. you know, large yeah. animals kind of smash their way through it, knock some trees down, like just open up the undergrowth a bit and, and get some light in.
0: Well, it's what ecologists would often call ecosystem engineers, right? Because they really change the environment they live in just by existing. Just by being, yeah. And, you know, changing it for the better,
1: Yeah. And we discussed a few weeks ago, the success of the beaver trials in Devon and and how they've kind of brought a whole river ecosystem back to life. And essentially the bison can kind of do the same sort of thing for the woodland.
0: Yeah, exactly. And this might sound like a really bizarre thing introduced to the UK, but they'd be essentially fulfilling the role left by ancient step bison that once lived in the UK. So it completely makes sense. Yeah. Does that sound like the kind of job you'd enjoy?
1: i mean i don't know what it involves whether the sort of you know a bit of vet vet work for the bison or just whether it's kind of driving around on a quad bike looking after them i mean why don't we look it up sounds... let's,
0: let's look at the uh, the job advert so i'm heading to the website it says apply here let's have a look
1: oops Ooh. i accidentally clicked it
0: oh no uh, salary up to twenty seven thousand per year dependent on skills and experience not yeah. bad not bad you need to work near canterbury canterbury's lovely yeah they say please note we are receiving a very high volume of queries please help us by reading the faqs in the application pack which should answer most questions <laughs> They're just having a load of people going please i want to work with your
1: bison yeah i'm really qualified because i really like bison <laughs>
0: <laughs> can i stroke your bison
1: can i ride the bison
0: <laughs> so importantly we need to look at the job description i think to find out what people need
1: they're really going to enjoy us advertising this, aren't they? <laughs> so,
0: the post holder will. So, these these things are essential. You need excellent knowledge of practical management of cattle, including handling, breeding, condition scoring, and illness slash injury care. I,
1: I'm you're out. out. I'm out. You're out, mate.
0: You're out. Also essential: extensive experience and confidence in livestock husbandry. You're out. You're out. Uh... Yeah, you know what? I don't think it's even worth going on. I don't think you're going to get this job, mate.
1: Ah, uh, what a shame.
0: Yeah. Although this one sounds nice—an understanding of natural animal behaviours and an empathetic view of animal management. Oh, that sounds sweet, doesn't it? Yeah.
1: I think I can do that.
0: Yeah. You need a current driver's license. You got it, mate. Yes, hundred percent. Yeah. Qualified. Qualified, qualified for
1: at least one of their bullet points.
0: Love it. You don't need a firearms license. Just uh, desirable.
1: Oh. Mm. Mildly worrying. Ooh. <laughs>
0: Okay, then let's not ask <laughs> yes so there you go so actually it needs someone really quite qualified not necessarily with bison that's the important point yeah. with cattle in general
1: yeah. someone someone who's good with a highland cow
0: exactly <laughs> imagine that putting that on your cv i've got something about like phd in science communication but i'd much rather be like knows a way around a highland cow
1: yeah <laughs> ready for bison yeah
0: <laughs> absolutely gagging for bison <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. So assuming that you had all of those qualifications, I feel like you could you'd quite enjoy that job though, right? Sort of Sound ad- very outdoorsy. Outdoorsy that's... with the bison. Yeah. But imagine if the bison got a little bit cheeky. Do you know how much a bison weighs? If you had to tell off a bison. I think this is where
1: the firearm licence comes in, I isn't it? it might be. Um they're gonna be a few tons, aren't they?
0: male bison can weigh up to a ton up to a ton okay i mean that's still quite a lot of weight you don't want to be disciplining an angry bison
1: no i think the bison's gonna win that argument most times
0: i think no i'm really intrigued to know who gets this i mean i'm gonna bet someone with a lot of livestock experience but good for them very exciting job number three last week saw an orange creature leave the white house but what orange creature has been discovered in guinea west africa which we all hope will be here to stay can i just say this question was kindly sent in by Shazabi? So thank you for that question. Very, I, I do like this one. Oh. Also, I just always love a question from someone who sent in an email because it's like a little bit less work for me to do. So thanks. Yeah.
1: I think I might have heard about this. Is it a bat?
0: It is a bat. It's a bat with strikingly orange fur. Oh. So the species was actually discovered in 2018 during surveys by scientists from the American Museum of Natural History, Bat Conservation International and the University of Marua. But the discovery has only just been published because, you know, all the work that goes into actually proving a new species is actually something new.
1: Yeah. So you said it's orange. And where was it found?
0: Mainly orange. Got a bit of black on it. And it was found in Guinea, West Africa.
1: Uh, OK, no, different part of the world. I was wondering whether it was related to painted bats. Because we are painted bats in Thailand and Southeast Asia and they're like they're quite strikingly orange as well but probably not if it was... No, and
0: they do look quite different. So the ones I think that you're talking about, the painted bats, aren't their wings orange?
1: Yes, partly. They're kind of orange and black.
0: Yes. No, this one, its fur is orange. It's Uh, got a fuzzy little orange fur. It's quite, it's very cute. I mean, I love bats. I know a lot of people get freaked out by them. I think they're absolutely adorable.
1: Yeah, I think people who get freaked out by bats probably haven't seen enough up-close pictures of adorable little bats. Oh,
0: they're so cute. Even when they're the ugly ones, like the, um, the horseshoe bats. Oh, they're so cute. I just love yeah. them.
1: And the, um, the flying foxes, which are quite big, have those, like, actually have very very different faces from the sort of typical little bat. And they've got the sort of longer snout and they look kind of dog-like, yeah. which is also just adorable.
0: Oh, I love a bat. So this species was actually found during expeditions to survey bats in caves and disused mining tunnels in the Nimba Mountains in Guinea. Now, these tunnels are known to have been heavily colonised by bats and they contain significant numbers of a critically endangered species of bat called Lamotte's roundleaf bat. So when they were surveying for this bat, they came across a bat that looked nothing like it and they just couldn't work out what it was. And it turns out it was new to science. Mm. Absolute scientist dream, right?
1: Yeah. Have they named it yet?
0: Well, it's been named Myotis Nimbiensis with Nimbiensis meaning from NIMBA. Yeah. So it's not a super catchy name, but I suppose maybe it'll get a common name in time. This new discovery just backs up the evidence that the NIMBA mountains are such an important area of bat diversity and endemism. Endemism being... Well, you can explain
1: what endemism means. Yeah, so it's where it's where you've got an area where a species is only found within a certain geographical limitation. So we obviously we often describe it in terms of being endemic to a country if it, if a species is only found within a country's borders. But it can also mean other things. You know, it can be applied to a, to a, any kind of geographical region because obviously being being endemic to China is kind of you can be quite a lot more wide ranging if you're endemic to China than if you're endemic to. San Marino. Yeah,
0: exactly. Apparently, the Nimba Mountains are so important for diversity because they contain a number of very high mountain peaks, which have a very different habitat to the lowlands around. So there's just such heterogeneity of habitats there. Mm. There's loads of different niches that animals can fit into. The problem is that these bats are only known from these disused mining tunnels, as is much of the population of Lamotte's roundleaf bat. And in time, these will collapse if nothing is done to secure them. So discoveries like this aren't just fun, although obviously knowing that a bright orange bat exists is fun. It's
1: always good news. They're
0: also important for securing support from governments and charities to protect the bat's habitats. Mm. So it's a good news story, really. Yeah, very cool. Number four. This week, a paper was published in Nature detailing a phenomenon known as blue jet. What is
1: that? Oh, I don't even know what realm of science we're in here. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, is it, is it like Blu ray? Is it, are we talking technology? Or is it like, I don't know, a blue jet of, I I, I don't know, chemistry? (laughs) Biology? Physics? Geology? Um, blue john that's a that's a type of that's a type of rock i know that much
0: it's flashes of blue lightning like bolts traveling upwards out of thunderclouds into the stratosphere wow yeah that what? exists i know nubataul report that a blue jet was observed in 2019 by scientists on board the international space station
1: wow so they saw it coming up at them
0: yeah, I mean, it's, it, it goes up into the stratosphere. So it doesn't come literally all the way to the space station. It goes yeah, into the like outer atmosphere of Earth. But yes,
1: it's, it's creepy, right? I can imagine like looking down from the International Space Station, you see shots taken from above of like thunderstorms that are happening below. Mm-hmm. And essentially, you've got a layer of cloud. And every so often it flashes when the lightning yeah. comes up. But but the lightning is going down. So all you get from above is sort of the flash of the cloud lighting up. Mm-hmm. But that seems so much more terrifying being above it. And instead of the flash, you get a bolt of lightning that kind of comes up towards you.
0: And the thing is, because the jets go upwards from the clouds, unlike typical lightning, they're much more obvious from space than they are from the ground. Yeah. So, But in case you want to see what it looks like, and let's be honest, you totally should, you can go on the European Space Agency's website where they've got a recreation video of what it looks like. It's really wow. cool. It's, it's really weird. You basically see these five blue flashes go off that kind of look like pretty normal lightning, followed by a blue pulse that goes upwards from the clouds and then like fans out into a huge cone shape, which stretches into the stratosphere. Wow. So if you're not familiar, the stratosphere is the area of the atmosphere that extends roughly 10 to 50 kilometers above the Earth's surface. Mm. So it's pretty dramatic looking.
1: That's amazing. That sounds, in my head, I'm picturing something like like one of those scenes on Doctor Who when they're sort of from Earth, they're firing something at a spaceship that's of aliens attacking or something and you've got these like bolts coming up kind of shooting up into the sky. It's
0: really not that different. It goes up and then it kind of spreads outwards like a cone. Oh,
1: it's weird.
0: It is weird. So I'm not a physicist, as you know, but I've been reading up on this. And basically it's caused by differences between the charge of the thunderclouds, which are positively charged, and the air above the cloud, which is negatively charged. And then when these charges meet, they swap and they briefly equalise. And this releases this huge burst of static electricity. And the visible effect of that is this incredible blue jet. It's just absolutely mad. Wow. I mean, I love thunderstorms in terms of like, you know, being inside snuggled up watching the thunderstorm outside. Yeah. But I think the idea of being in the international space station and seeing like essentially a huge parade water fountain erupt from the earth would have to go into the category of like super cool, but not sure I have the level of chill to cope with that.
1: No. I mean, I'm not sure you have the level of chill to cope with being on the International Space Station anyway. I mean, probably
0: not. <laughs> Add that into it and I have lost my cool. Anyway, this paper by Nubus et al. is very cool because although we know the basic mechanism behind these blue jets, there's still a lot to understand. So having this well-documented example is just a step in the right direction towards, you know, being able to know exactly what conditions cause them and I guess ultimately being able to predict them. Number five. Researchers have discovered a cave painting in Indonesia that they believe to be the oldest ever found. What is it a painting of?
1: Oh, um, I know. People tended to like painting like hunting scenes and stuff, mm. didn't they? So I'm going to go with some kind of Indonesian forest cow.
0: It's a Siloese warty pig you're not too far off okay it was found in a limestone cave in south Sulawesi and it's a clear depiction of the species because this okra painting shows even the warts on the pig's face that are characteristic in adult male Sulawesi warty pigs so basically, listen lives in it has warts, it's a pig, the name fits. Yeah. Its age is incredible, though. The authors, Brum et al., found calcite deposits on top of the painting, and they used uranium series isotope dating to age this deposit. So this is where it gets, like, seriously science-y. And then that calcite deposit turned out to be 45,500 years Whoa.
1: old. I oh, know. No. And, and,
0: see as the painting is just underneath that deposit... The painting itself could be even older than that. What? That is so long ago, I just can't, I can't comprehend it.
1: Okay, I was, when you said that, halfway through the question, I thought the question was going to be, how old is it? And my guess was going to be like 15,000 years. Like, I know. It's mad. 45. at a minimum. That's crazy. That's also a really clever way of dating it as well. I was wondering how they'd managed to to get the date on but that's really Mm, clever because the deposit has to have built up after the painting.
0: Exactly, exactly. Mm. So it's believed to be the earliest known representational art ever found. That is art that actually depicts a particular object like an animal rather than abstract drawings. In the painting the pig is facing two less well-preserved pigs as if it's watching them interacting. So basically what we have here is the preservation of a nosy pig just... Eavesdropping on its other little pig friends. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not going to lie; it looks so much like a photo that the Museum of English Rural Life would post on their Twitter account. Yeah. If anyone listening hasn't followed the mail on Twitter, do it now. It sounds really dull, but they post these hilarious photos of like old-fashioned livestock with funny captions.
1: It's brilliant. It is, it's, it's just so golden Twitter. It's entertainment. so good.
0: But basically, this pig is an absolute unit. I'm I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna show you a photo after this. For those of you listening at home. Please Google this pig painting. It's so good. And it's so old. Joking aside, this is a really incredible discovery. These paintings are believed to have been created by Homo sapiens, the exact same species as us, but at least 45,500 years ago. What a find.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. I love stuff like that.
0: Well, at the end of that round, you got an impressive score of... 1 what one out of five. Oh no yeah what,
1: um, i just got the bat
0: i'm sorry you just got the bat you didn't get anything else but you know what we had a really nice chat about some very cool science so really everyone's a winner here except you you got one out of five
1: journal club
0: anyway after that glorious score it's time to hear what paper you've got for us this week you ready to go
1: yeah i'm ready So, this week, I'm taking us back to the reason that this podcast exists. Because we're bored? Mm, Sort of. We claimed that this was something for us to do in lockdown, other than study the behaviour of our cat. But I'm going to bend the rules and say that it's okay if we're studying other people's cats.
0: Yeah, I'll give you that. I'll yeah? give you that. Yeah.
1: My other excuse, because I know I covered a cat paper fairly recently, is that this is actually a
0: listener suggestion. Oh, we love a listener suggestion. We had a question and we got a paper. Yeah. The listeners are doing the work for us this week. We love to
1: see it. Yeah, so Kate got in touch with us at LockdownSciencePodcast at com to suggest a paper on whether domestic cats can recognise their owners.
0: Kate knows our taste.
1: I feel like there's some potential for dreams to be made or ruined here.
0: Yeah, I... Um... Um, do I want to know the answer to this? Because my impression is that Suki knows me and loves me for who I am, not just because I provide her with food.
1: Well, you might have to wait and see, (laughs) wait and see where we are in 10 minutes.
0: I I don't care what you say. Suki is special and I am special to her.
1: Okay. Well, we're going to take this on anyway and see where we end up. So how much do you know about domestication?
0: I've actually been doing a lot of reading about domestication recently as part of my PhD so I really hope you're going to find me something a bit more interesting than turns out birds become bad parents
1: I'll give give it a little run through for the listeners anyway but the paper is about asking questions about how far domestication has developed so domestication is the process by which over thousands of years humans have kind of unwittingly guided the evolution of wild species to form the modern animals which are now very useful to us so cows, sheep, pigs, goats, horses, llamas, dogs and cats are all domesticated animals descended from wild ancestors What's happened over these thousands of years is that humans have taken advantage of animal traits which exist, whether that's producing good meat or milk or eggs or wool, being possible to ride or train or being able to chase off intruders. Over time, humans have encouraged the breeding of animals which display these traits most strongly, producing the most meat or the most wool, growing faster, laying larger eggs or laying them for longer, whilst also favouring individuals that are less aggressive and more docile and are more comfortable around humans. Mhm. Effectively, this is selective breeding dating back thousands of years, which has slowly driven the evolution of species that are quite different from their wild ancestors.
0: Yeah, I mean pug versus wolf, you know.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I was going to mention dogs. So it's thought that dogs were the earliest species to begin domestication around 15,000 years ago when people form some kind of alliance with wolves.
0: I know that you're trying to be impressive, but 15,000 years ago is not as long ago as 45,000. Only a third of the age of your cave painting. (laughs) So
1: yeah, okay. Long time after that cave painting was done, some people started to kind of, you know, hang out with some wolves a little bit. And looking at dogs today, it's quite clear that we've selected for a whole range of physical and behavioural traits that are quite different from wolves. So dogs can be bigger or smaller or hairier, leggier, skinnier... And unfortunately, in some cases, downright unhealthy. But what we've also bred into dogs is an ability to communicate with us. So dogs can recognise familiar humans by sight, by smell or by sound. And they can communicate with facial expressions and behaviours. And we can read them and they can read us. Cats, on the other hand, have a shorter history of domestication, only dating back about nine and a half thousand years. But
0: enough time to be absolutely freaking adorable. Am I right? Uh,
1: Well, maybe, or maybe they were just naturally absolutely freaking adorable because, you know, as we found out last week, so are wolves. True. So domestic cats are descended from the African wildcat Felis sylvestris, which is native to North Africa and the Arabian Peninsula. And in the first instance, this is thought to have been a very passive process with cats essentially hanging around people to prey on mice, which were feeding on our grain stores. So the actual time frame over which cats have been strongly domesticated is much shorter than it is for dogs, and therefore they are less domesticated. Nevertheless, the meowing of domestic cats is apparently perceived by humans to be more pleasant than that of African wild cats.
0: Interesting. Mm.
1: Domestic cats react differently to familiar and unfamiliar humans. So the question that this week's paper sets out to test is can cats distinguish familiar humans from unfamiliar ones by their voice alone? Ooh. So this isn't quite as black and white as it sounded to start with. We know or we knew before this paper that cats could recognize familiar humans by sight. Mm. But this is specifically whether they can do it on voice.
0: Okay. So I think I'm okay with whatever this comes out as because if they do, great. If they don't, it's fine cuz Sugi just loves me by sight. Yeah.
1: So in 2013, Atsuko Saito and Kazutaka Shinozuka apologies for terrible pronunciation, addressed this question by studying 20 domestic cats. They took recordings of each cat's owner and four strangers calling the cat's name or its commonly used nickname. And I like this because we've got nicknames for Suki that run well into double figures. So it's reassuring to know that clearly it's not that unusual to have some nicknames for your cat.
0: They're all very affectionate, but some of them cannot be said on the radio (laughs) because Ofcom wouldn't let us.
1: Anyway, with the owner out of sight, the cats were then exposed to the five recordings in order. Stranger 1, Stranger 2, Stranger 3, Owner, and Stranger Mm 4, spaced at about 30 second intervals. The idea behind this is that as the cat's name is repeatedly called by strangers, it gets used to hearing it, and so it stops paying attention to the noise. And this habituation removes the possibility that the cat is simply responding to the noise rather than to its owner's voice. Mm, Clever. So the idea is that the recognition of the owner's voice is then measured by how much more the cat responds to the owner's voice than to the preceding stranger's voice, as opposed to continuing to pay less attention. The responses of the cats were videoed, and the responses to each call were clipped out. Mm. Blank sounds were then pasted over the human's calls, so the listener couldn't tell anything about the voice which the cat was responding to. So it's kind of, it's a blind test. Very important. Yeah. The clips were then played in a random order to 10 people who didn't know the cats or the experiment and they were asked to rank the cat's responses on a scale of zero to three from no response to a marked response and i should also say at this point like as well as doing the the pasting out the clips they also did a whole load of other stuff like they they asked the owners not to call in a particularly kind of coaxing way they just did a very kind of uh, how they would normally call their cat but then they got the strangers to replicate that voice Uh, as much as possible so that any of the sort of phonetics of how they're saying the word is matched as far as possible to try and control for the fact that you just want the voice recognition. Yes, very important. So 15 out of the 20 cats habituated to the first three strangers saying their name. That is, they got used to it and they showed progressively less of a response to the noise over those three calls. Among these 15 cats, there was then a strong increase in their response when the owner said their name which indicated that they did recognise the sound coming from a familiar voice. So it appears that cats can recognise familiar humans by voice alone. Aww. So that's a relief for you. Yeah. Now, the responses of the cats were also scored by the experimenter. According to whether they moved their head, their ears or their tail, whether their pupils dilated, i.e. they got bigger, or whether they made any vocalisation themselves or whether they got up and moved. The cats mostly responded to human voices by head or ear movement turning to face the sound in a kind of i'm listening response
0: yeah i know that one
1: yeah but it was rare for them to do any kind of vocalization or tail movement which could be interpreted more as a communication response Mm. so so essentially they're kind of going i'm listening but you know i'm not going to reply it's
0: more like i've heard it but i'm yeah it's not worth my time don't
1: need to do anything what's more only three cats showed displacement I moved during the experiment, while the others remained sat or lying down. So, although they recognised their owner's voice, most of the cats couldn't actually be bothered to get up and go and respond.
0: <laughs> They've got very important cat business to do right on the spot.
1: I know. I mean, they're busy kind of liquiding themselves into a sofa. So, why would they? Why would they go and see what their owner wants?
0: Also, there's no food on offer. I believe in this situation.
1: No, no. So, it's just, why
0: would they move?
1: Yeah. Uh, fair enough exactly so the authors note that this response differs to that of dogs who do respond to their owners voices and communicate back but despite this cat owners are no less attached to their pets than dog owners so they point out that the behavioral aspect of cats that causes their owners to become attached to them remains unknown (laughs) because essentially there's a scientific way of saying you get less feedback from a cat yeah that you do from a but they're just adorable but everyone still loves them just as much
0: because sometimes you can't really quantify it like that i mean suki just like sits on my lap and turns to liquid and i guess my heart turns to liquid in turn like I, she's so fluffy I mean, there's big eyes.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I'm not The, being, the eyes fuzzy. have it. That's, that's you know, there's, there's no behavioural aspect. It's just the eyes. It's just,
0: she's so cute. I don't, yeah, I, I can't say what it is, but it's something about them being fuzzy with giant eyes.
1: So another little thing that I love about this paper is the fact that they ran a pilot study on the experimenter's cat. Oh. Now, I know from the papers, yes, there are more, mm-hmm. that Kate sent me. These authors do a lot of work on cats. So I love the thought that there's a grumpy cat out there, which is just repeatedly called and watched for pilot studies every time its owner is devising a new experiment.
0: (laughs) Do we have the name of the cat?
1: No, it wasn't mentioned, actually. How rude. Yeah, I feel like it should have been credited.
0: Exactly, it should be. Are you sure it's not one of the authors? They haven't done something fun like that. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I, maybe i mean there are only actually two authors and i did google both of them uh and they both came up appearing to be people so oh, I, that's I don't really think of cat.
0: i would love it if someone had done a
1: paper with just them and their cat <laughs> that would be fab wouldn't it yeah no i've just checked the cat doesn't even get an acknowledgement
0: Rude. <laughs> yeah i know
1: but i feel like i heard a story about a paper on this a while ago where there is a a paper with a cat as an author because it was something like the author had written the paper and it was a single author paper and he typed it all out with we instead of i and the journal requested that it should be i if it was just a single author so he kind of tacked on his his cat as a co-author so that he didn't have to go and retype his paper it was like it was back in the day before computers
0: okay i'm going to google this okay okay So yes, in 1975, Jack Hetherington and FDC Willard published a paper together in physical review letters. It was about atomic behaviour, but Jack Hetherington was in fact a human academic, but FDC Willard, taking important place of final author on this paper, was actually his cat Chester. Ah,
1: you know what that makes Chester? What? An atomic kitten.
0: (laughs) Oh, dude, that's so bad. (laughs) So (laughs) bad. So bad. Yes, FDC, for after Felix Domesticus, his species name, C for Chester, and Willard was the cat's dad's name. <laughs> I mean, apparently, when people found out, Chester was invited to join the university's physics department full-time. Oh. That's nice
1: for So not only has a cat been an author on a scientific paper, it's also been a member of a department.
0: Became a tenured got member. Got
1: tenure. This cat's done better than you. Oh.
0: <laughs> but, yeah, so this cat got a permanent position
1: and an authorship
0: whereas on this paper the cats don't even get acknowledged
1: yeah rude rude what happens if that paper wins a nobel prize
0: i guess the cat does gets the a cat nobel get prize? a nobel
1: prize I mean, posthumously i hope presumably, so presumably, I Unless know, it's a very old cat yeah didn't you say 1975 yeah the cat would yes. have to be 35 at this point
0: yeah i don't think i think even the world's oldest cat was only like 32 it was called cream puff as i do remember <laughs> because this is the kind of thing i look up in my spare time
1: yeah okay we've got a bit sidetracked <laughs> <laughs> well thank you kate for sending this in and remember if you've got a paper you'd like us to discuss please do get in touch with us at lockdownsciencepodcast at gmail.com so what's your paper this week
0: well when someone says monkey business It kind of conjures up ideas of playfulness and silliness. But what if I told you that monkeys really do have business acumen?
1: Oh, I'm intrigued.
0: (laughs) Well, in fact, monkeys know how to kidnap and demand a ransom and they know just what price they should be demanding. Oh. Kind of of terrifying.
1: Who are they kidnapping?
0: Well, it's okay. It's not who, it's what.
1: Okay, okay.
0: This week, I came across a paper published in the middle of January by Laker et al, titled Acquisition of Object Robbing and Object Food Bartering Behaviors, a Culturally Maintained Token Economy in Free-Ranging Long-Tailed Macaques. It basically shows just how crafty and clever a species of monkey can be.
1: Is, it, is this about monkeys nicking stuff?
0: It's about monkeys nicking stuff.
1: It's actually a really fun paper, <laughs> even
0: though the title is very long. The researchers conducted observations of a large free-ranging population of long-tailed macaques around the Uluwatu Temple in Bali, Indonesia, and they were watching for when these monkeys stole items from visitors. You may have heard about this kind of behaviour before, right? There are lots of places, particularly in Southeast Asia, where monkeys have become very grabby around tourists. Yeah, because they feed them. Yeah, so basically tourists come with lots of exciting-looking items and often food, and the monkeys just can't resist helping themselves to a few, should we say, souvenirs? Actually, a lot of souvenirs. So at this site, the researchers recorded, on average... 7.8 robbing events per hour. Wow. (laughs) But the cool thing about the population around the Uluwatu Temple in Bali is that the monkeys have taken this thieving one step further. They take items that aren't actually useful to them and hold them to ransom until they're given food by a temple warden. Uh, Okay. Now, this part has been known for a while, but what this paper shows is that the monkeys are aware of the value of the items that they steal, and this influences how much food, or the quality of food, that they're willing to accept in exchange for giving the human's item
1: back. Oh, no.
0: (laughs) They're learning.
1: (laughs) 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 We're we're one step closer (laughs) to Planet of the Apes. I know. Now, this
0: is super cool, because essentially it shows that they understand a token Economy. Now, token economy is basically what we have. We use money, which isn't itself worth what we can exchange it for, but because it has a symbolic value, we can exchange it for items that we
1: want. Yeah, it's like a sort of cultural agreement that the, that this has a value and therefore
0: exactly we'll use it. Yeah, exactly. In the same way, a camera isn't actually worth anything to the monkey in its own right, but the monkey knows it's valuable because it knows that humans will give the monkey what it wants food mm. in exchange for the having the camera back yeah it's not too complicated for a monkey to learn that if they take something off a the human they'll be given food in exchange for giving the item back but actually being able to learn how much humans value different items is really clever
1: yeah so they know that if they nick someone's cap they might just kind of give up and not give anything for it because they don't really care whereas yeah if they nick us nick sunglasses maybe people want those back a little bit more and then yeah something like a camera that's a that's a high priced item
0: exactly they they ranked it just like that so in order to rank whether items were low or high value to humans the researchers observed how often humans would try to barter with a monkey to get the stolen item okay. back so that kind of assumes that items that humans didn't bother to try to get back were low value and the items that humans were willing to swap for you know the firstborn child were probably <laughs> pretty valuable now that to me seems really sensible and the results make a lot of sense. So low value tokens included empty containers like water bottles and bags. Medium value tokens included hats and shoes. And high value tokens included glasses and phones. So pretty mm. much exactly what you just said. So this will make sense. I mean, you probably surrender your water bottle to your new monkey overlords, but but you kind of fight them Planet of the Apes style for your iPhone.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm impressed by how they get shoes as well.
0: I guess flip-flops.
1: Yeah, probably. if you're sat down. If you sat down and you got okay. your foot in the
0: air, you could probably nick a flip-flop yeah, quite easily. Yeah, I see. What I love about this is how the researchers were essentially watching chaos unfold in front <laughs> yeah. of them and just noting it down.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, what else could they do? But also, it must have been quite amusing just watching this unfold.
1: Yeah, that that sounds like a great research project.
0: Now, the results are really cool. As monkeys get older, they become more likely to steal items from humans. They become more likely to choose more valuable items to steal. So sub-adults and adults are more likely to nick medium or high-value items than young monkeys. Yeah. And they also get better at using items to barter for food, because adults were more likely to wait for tastier or greater quantities of food before returning those higher value items.
1: Ah, okay. So so it's like a learning process as they get older.
0: Exactly. It shows that there's this element of individual learning involved in the art of crime. is Isn't that amazing? That
1: is amazing. And it's interesting as well, because I I don't know, sort of naively, I guess because you kind of think of monkeys as being a bit like unruly teenagers. Yeah. I... I guess naively I would have thought that maybe younger monkeys would have been more likely to steal stuff because they're the ones that are kind of messing around. Mm. But actually this kind of flips it because it's not a case of messing around. It's a case of stealing because you know it's an effective way to get food and therefore actually it's the adults doing it more that's really yeah. Weird.
0: essentially it's an economy what we're seeing here is that non-human primates can understand the concept of symbolic value and they can use it to their advantage yeah it's not the most honest of economies that they've created here because it feels less like a currency and more like a hostage situation <laughs> but nevertheless they are exchanging something that isn't valuable to them for something that is based on the understanding of what their clients aka the human
1: wants yeah
0: sneaky little monkeys very
1: sneaky i do feel like there are two ways of framing this though i feel i feel like one is that like you know it's just another thing that sort of shoving that divide between humans and, and other animals closer together and like there's more and more stuff that we can show that an- other animals can do and understand that we used to think were just things that humans could do the other way of looking at it is that the next time an economist tries to talk down to you about some detailed economics theory you could just kind of slap back at them the fact that actually economics is so simple that a monkey can understand it we've
0: got a few friends we can use that on i look yep. forward to it <laughs> Anyway, this research is super cool in itself. But because evolutionary biologists can't just say something's cool and leave it at that, we can't have nice things. And I say that with love, as an evolutionary biologist myself. The authors also talk about how this can help us to understand how human token economies might have developed. Mm. The thing that is special about this study is that all other studies looking at the adoption of token economies in non-human primates have looked at small captive populations, where like, often the primates are essentially trained by humans to offer tokens in exchange for food. Now, it's not that those studies are useless, but they do tell us less about how these kinds of behaviours might evolve naturally without you know, purposeful interventions. Yeah. Now, what this study shows is that these token economies can be monkey-driven rather than human-driven, and that they can be population-specific because no other macaque population has been observed doing this even in other situations where it looks possible.
1: Mm, And
0: it's a learnt behaviour because monkeys get better at it during their life.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting.
0: So there you go. Lock up your valuables, because for monkeys, every day's a hustle.
1: Animal Etymologies
0: This week I was trying to think of an etymology for something that is very familiar, but you maybe didn't know where it got its name from. And I was staring into the garden and up popped some inspiration. Do you know where the name squirrel comes from?
1: Oh, um, no, I've got no idea.
0: I thought not. Now, there are lots of different species of squirrel. And in the UK, we have the red squirrel and now the much more common grey squirrel. The scientific name of the grey squirrel is Sciurus carolinensis. And carolinensis just refers to the fact that it's found in North and South Carolina in the US. Nothing too exciting there. But The Sciurus part is more interesting. Both the common name, squirrel, and the genus name, Sciurus come from the same linguistic root. What do you think it originally comes from?
1: I don't know. I've always thought of scurus as sort of... It reminds me of scurrying. So it kind of seems apt for a squirrel but i've got no idea whether that's actually where it comes from
0: you know that's also what i probably would have guessed because mm. it just sounds quite scur-
1: squirrely Squirrely, yeah, yeah exactly
0: it's not so scurus is a latin word meaning squirrel which means we're not at the original root yet so let's go back to ancient greek where it comes from two words skia meaning shadow and ura meaning tail so Oh. A squirrel is a shadow tail, which I think sounds very mysterious and super it villain-esque. does. So it seems to be either because they would sit in the shadow of their own tail, or because their big bushy tails would create a shadow. It's oh. not entirely clear okay. anymore.
1: Yeah, I guess the way they sit, they use their tail for shelter at least. Exactly. Um, if, it, if it's cold or if it's raining. So maybe they use it for shade.
0: And there you go. Don't think of squirrels as cheeky little munchkins in your garden. They are in fact ominous shadow tails. <laughs>
1: isolation recommendations
0: right so heading into another week of lockdown what's your recommendation for people staying at home
1: my recommendation this week comes from a colleague who a few days ago pointed me to a tweet by matt burton at burtonemia advertising a free downloadable coloring book which he wrote on different types of arthropods.
0: Oh, I saw this. Yeah. I like
1: this. So arthropods are the large invertebrate group, which includes insects, crustaceans, spiders, and scorpions. And this book includes a couple of introductory pages with information about arthropods and their habitats and their diets, as well as their distribution across different biogeographic zones of the world. There are then 24 pages of pictures for colouring in, covering lots of different orders or groups of arthropods, together with an accompanying fact sheet about each group. I think this looks like a great resource for both kids and adults as a winter activity to do some mindful colouring in, but also to learn some animal facts at the same time.
0: Yeah, I'm so up for this. It's And am I right in thinking there's even a burying beetle on the front cover?
1: Oh, I actually didn't notice that. Did you? Check it, check it. Okay, okay. There is. Or yeah. something that looks very much like a burying beetle anyway.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure what the species is. I need to look at it in more detail. But I did indeed think I'd seen a burying beetle.
1: Yeah, it looks like a burying beetle, a scorpion and a woodlouse crawling mm. over the world.
0: in the carrion community. I love it. Yeah, Yeah. In, c- in case anyone hadn't noticed from earlier episodes, I work on burying beetle for my PhD. And most people don't even know they exist. So when there is a burying beetle in anything, I'm like, oh, I feel validated. <laughs> Very exciting. I think this is a great idea. I think with lockdown, there's very much a tendency to be inside our heads a lot. Yeah, you know, think too much, and this is just a really lovely resource for people who maybe just want to try something a little bit different and not think for too long.
1: No, I think it's great. I mean, you know, kids love colouring in, but actually, there's a bit of a craze for. For adult mindful coloring because it's just a great way of kind of taking your mind off things and you just get absorbed in doing something else for a bit.
0: And in this case, you can learn at you the same learn. time.
1: Yeah. So this is called Arthropods: A Coloring Learning Guide for Young Naturalists. And in his tweet, Matt said that he wrote this book a few years ago when he needed to earn some cash, but he never actually used it. And since he now has a job, he's putting it up there for free. So I just thought that was absolutely lovely. Yeah, it's just, uh, that's pretty just doing a good thing. So if you want to look it up, his name is Matt Burton. That's at Bertonemia, B-E-R-T-O-N-E-M-Y-I-A, on Twitter... And the tweet was on the 22nd of January.
0: Should we do that? Should we have an arthropod colouring in sash this weekend? I think
1: we should do, Oh, yeah. that sounds
0: wholesome. Let's get some food in and colour some insects. Yeah. I love it.
1: What's your recommendation?
0: Can I do a cheeky self-serving recommendation?
1: Aww, oh, go on then.
0: Yeah. The new series of my other Come FM show slash podcast has now started. Woo! And the super convenient thing about it is that it's fortnightly like this show, but it comes out on the week that this doesn't. So if you want your weekly fix of science, then I have got you covered,
1: kiddos. And what's good about this one is if you like this podcast, but you're really in it for Ellie and you think that I'm a bit rubbish, you can head straight on over to us and STEM and listen to more Ellie.
0: Or if you think I'm also a little bit rubbish, then don't worry because I don't talk very much in this one, I'm interviewing other people. So it's called Us and STEM, and I chat to a guest each week about their life and work in science. It's an informal chat show, and I feature guests from all across the STEM fields and from all stages of their career. So it's a really fun and interesting mix. Last week's episode featured Professor Chris Jackson, who you may know from the most recent Royal Institution Christmas lectures, and he's also chair in sustainable geoscience at the University of Manchester. He told me about what it was like behind the scenes at the lectures, all the messages he received afterwards about his most dangerous expeditions, what sustainable geoscience actually is. He talked about institutionalised racism in academia and how we can help break this down. So basically we had a really varied, really interesting chat about his life and his work and his perspectives on big issues. He was brilliant. Academia 100% needs more professors like him.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, we watched his Christmas lecture together and I mean, he came across brilliantly in that. But from everything you said from chatting to him, he also just sounds like a, an absolutely lovely guy as well as being a brilliant scientist.
0: Yeah. well, He's engaging. He's fun to talk to. He's passionate about his work. He has this really impressive academic career. But he also cares about societal justice and he's not afraid to speak out about it. Anyway, you can find that podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just search us and STEM. And in this case, STEM is spelt with two M's because we don't want to leave the medics out.
1: And it's not just that that's available, right? You've got your old episodes on there too.
0: I have. I've got series three. So this was a show that I originally started doing just live in the studio. So I didn't use to put any of them up as podcasts. But last series, the CamFM studio shut because of COVID. So I started doing them as a podcast as well. So they go out on Cam FM and you can check out series three and now each of these ones on Apple Podcasts and Spotify as they come out each week.
1: And who have you got on next week?
0: Well, next week I have Sophie Pavel, who is a zoologist, author and wildlife presenter and I chatted to her earlier today, so I've already recorded that one, and it's really cool. She talks about how she went from zoology student to starring in wildlife documentaries and writing a book, although that's not how she puts it. She's very modest. I'm going to blow her trumpet for her. She's very cool. She has lots of interesting stories, and I know that she's going to be a really fun one to listen to. So that one's going to be available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify next Friday on the 5th of February. Well, I guess we better wrap it up for today, but you can still get in touch with us in between shows. Just email, and I think this is about the fifth time we said it, LockdownSciencePodcast at gmail.com. Now send over your cool science papers, your ideas for animal names you want to know the meaning of, or just say hi. We do like getting emails, even if one of them last week was from your sister saying that she was glad. That we changed the jingles in it because she couldn't stand the sound of your voice. So that's nice.
1: <laughs> yeah, she listened listened to the podcast, but apparently uh, the sound of my voice in the jingles was too much. So <laughs> anyway, you can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Eleanor underscore Bladen and i'm at andrew underscore bladen and if you're enjoying this podcast we'd be so grateful if you could rate and review us on apple podcasts it really helps other people to find the show
0: oh we'd love a little five star review and we love the emails we get from you we we do joke about it but it is genuinely lovely to hear from people who are enjoying the show when we record it it can just feel like we're chatting to ourselves so hearing from listeners is a great way to find out that you're out there
1: well that's about all we've got for today but we'll be back in 2 weeks time with another episode of lockdown science on camfm